This is Space Time Series 20, Episode 64, for broadcast on the 16th of August 2017. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, direct from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Spacetime is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world through TuneIn Radio, and as in-flight entertainment aboard Virgin Australia. Coming up on Spacetime, galaxies at the cosmic dawn, Cassini begins its final five orbits around Saturn, and ancient Earth was a water world. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have peered back to the dawn of time, discovering 23 young galaxies as they were just 800 million years after the Big Bang. The findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal represent one of the deepest ever observations into the 13.8 billion year old universe. When the first atoms formed in the cosmos some 300,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe was still a dark place. There were no stars or galaxies and instead the cosmos was filled with neutral hydrogen gas. Over the next half a billion years or so, the first stars and galaxies began to appear. It was the energetic radiation they produced which ionised their surroundings, illuminating and transforming the universe forever. This dramatic transformation, known as the Epoch of Reionization, occurred sometime between 300 million and a billion years after the Big Bang. Astronomers are still trying to pinpoint this milestone more precisely, and the galaxies found in this study will help them in this endeavour. Before reionization, these galaxies would have been hard to see, because their light was scattered by intergalactic gas, a bit like a car's headlights in fog. But as enough stars and galaxies began to turn on and ionise this intergalactic gas, they became easier to see. By doing so, they also helped provide a diagnostic to see how much of the fog remains at any time in the universe. To detect these galaxies, astronomers have been using a powerful new tool known as the Dark Energy Camera. The camera has been installed on the National Optical Astronomy Observatory's 4-metre Blanco telescope in northern Chile. Several years ago, astronomers attempted the same study using a 64-megapixel camera that covers the same amount of sky as the full moon. By comparison, the giant 570-megapixel dark energy camera covers some 15 times the area of the full moon in a single image and with far greater resolution. The Galaxy Search is part of the ongoing Lyman Alpha Galaxies in the Epoch of Reionization project. The new discovery also represents the largest uniformly selected sample going far enough back in the history of the universe to reach the cosmic dawn. This combination of a large survey size and sensitivity enables astronomers for the first time to study such a range of galaxies at such an early stage of the universe. Importantly, these new findings imply that a large fraction of the first galaxies that ionised and therefore illuminated the universe formed early on, less than 800 million years after the Big Bang. 
The next move for scientists will build on these results by searching for distant star-forming galaxies over a larger volume of the universe and to further investigate the nature of some of these first-ever galaxies. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. NASA's Cassini spacecraft has entered new territory during its final mission phase, known as the Grand Finale, embarking on a set of ultra-close passes through Saturn's upper atmosphere with its final five orbits around the ringed world. Cassini completed the first of these five orbits over Saturn on Monday. The spacecraft's closest approach to Saturn during these passes is between 1630 and 1710 kilometres above Saturn's cloud tops. During these final orbits, the spacecraft's encountering atmosphere dense enough to require the use of its small onboard manoeuvring rocket thrusters to maintain stability. That means they're conditions similar to those encountered during many of Cassini's close flybys of Saturn's moon Titan, which has its own dense atmosphere. Cassini project manager Earl Mays from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, says it was Cassini's Titan flybys which prepared mission managers for these rapid passes through Saturn's upper atmosphere. Mays says the team would consider the flybys nominal if the thrusters operated between 10 and 60% of their capability. On the other hand, if the thrusters are forced to work harder, it means Saturn's atmosphere is much denser than their models predict. Engineers will therefore have to increase Cassini's altitude for subsequent orbits. If that happens, it would require what mission managers refer to as a pop-up manoeuvre. Thrusters will be used to raise the altitude of closest approach on following orbits by around 200 kilometres. On the other hand, if the pop-up manoeuvre is not needed, and the atmosphere turns out to be less dense than expected during the first three of these orbits, engineers could alternatively use a pop-down manoeuvre to lower the closest approach to Saturn during the last two orbits, again by around 200 kilometres. Doing so would enable Cassini science instruments, especially its ion and neutral mass spectrometer, to obtain data on the atmosphere even closer to the ring planet's swirling cloud tops. As it makes these five dips into the Saturnian atmosphere, followed by its final suicidal death plunge, Cassini will become Saturn's first atmospheric probe. It's long been a goal of planetary exploration to send a dedicated probe into Saturn's atmosphere. And NASA's laying the groundwork for future exploration with this first foray. Other Cassini instruments will make detailed high-resolution observations of Saturn's aurora, temperature and the vortexes at the planet's poles. Its radar will also peer deep into Saturn's atmosphere to reveal small-scale features as fine as 25 kilometres wide, which is nearly 100 times smaller than the spacecraft could observe prior to these final orbits. Then on September 11th, a distant encounter with the moon Titan will serve as a gravitational version of a large pop-down manoeuvre effectively slowing Cassini's orbit around Saturn and bending its flight path slightly to send the spacecraft towards its September 15th death plunge into the planet. During the half-orbit plunge, the plan is to have seven Cassini science instruments turned on and reporting measurements in near real time. Eventually, the spacecraft will descend deep enough to reach an altitude where atmospheric density becomes about twice that it's encountered during its final five passes. Once Cassini reaches that point, its thrusters will no longer be able to work against the push of Saturn's atmosphere to keep the spacecraft's antenna pointing towards the Earth. And it's at that point where contact with Cassini will be lost forever. The spacecraft will break up like a meteor moments later, finally bringing an end to its historic 20-year mission. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. 
A new analysis of mineral grains indicates that the ancient Earth was most likely a water world, barren, flat and almost entirely underwater, with only a few small islands sticking above the surface. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Geoscience, are based on a study of 4.4 billion-year-old zircon crystal grains, preserved in sandstone rocks in the Jack Hills of Western Australia, which are among the oldest fragments of Earth ever found. The study's lead author, Dr Anthony Burnham from the Australian National University, says the history of planet Earth is a bit like a book with its first chapter missing. The problem is there are no surviving rocks from the very earliest period of Earth's formation, shortly after its creation 4.6 billion years ago. So instead, Burnham and colleagues have used trace elements in tiny time capsules of zircon crystals to try and build up a profile of the world at that time. Their research indicates there were no mountains or continental collisions during the Earth's first 700 million years or more of existence, making the planet a geologically more quiet and dull place. The findings also showed that there were strong similarities with zircons from the types of rocks that predominated for the following 1.5 billion years, and all that suggests that it took Earth a long time to evolve into the planet which we know today. Burnham says the zircon grains that eroded out of the oldest rocks were like skin cells found at a crime scene. The authors used the granites of southeastern Australia to decipher the link between zircon composition and magma type, building up a picture of what those missing rocks were. The first known life forms emerged sometime later, between about 3.8 and 4.2 billion years ago. The zircons were formed by melting older igneous rocks rather than sediments. And that's important because sediment melting is characteristic of major continental collisions, such as those happening now through the formation of the Himalayan mountains being generated by the Indian tectonic plate colliding with the Eurasian plate. What these studies are telling the authors is that it appears such events weren't occurring during the very early stages of the Earth's history. Scientists have been able to build on each other's work to gain a better understanding of the early Earth. Burnham says the samples of zircon from Jack Hills have been collected over the course of several decades by many research teams, and chemical analyses carried out by ANU teams over 20 years ago are also still proving to be invaluable. We do not have any rocks from the first 10% of Earth's history, roughly speaking. The Earth formed at about 4.5 billion years ago, and the oldest rock that we have is 4 billion years old. And so we want to know what happened in that first 500 million years. And the only way that we can do this is by looking in some sandstones from Western Australia. Although the original rocks are gone, there were granites that eroded away and left behind a few grains of the mineral zircon. And these are preserved in sandstones in Western Australia. By extracting the zircons and analyzing their chemical composition, their age, their isotopic composition, we can then start to build up a picture of what the earlier time period on our planet was like. What have you found? So there's two major ways that granitic magmas form. Uh, One is by melting pre-existing igneous crust and one is by melting sediments. And when we studied rocks of known provenance from southeast Australia, we were able to actually build up a chemical fingerprint of the two different types of granite. And what we found was that these oldest mineral grains on the earth seem to have the closest affinity to the ones that form by melting igneous crust. So there's no evidence, or not much evidence really, that there was recycling of sediments and melting of sediments on the early Earth. Now that's interesting when you start to think about the 
type of plate tectonics that might have happened then because nowadays those sediment melts tend to form in massive continental collisions, places like the Alps or the Himalayas. And so the fact that we don't see much evidence of that in the early Earth is very interesting. What's that telling you about the topography and, I guess, the overall makeup of the early Earth then? Well, the, the isotopic evidence that other people have collected shows that there probably wasn't much continental crust at the time. And our, what we suggest from our results is that there weren't any kind of major collisions between whatever continental units they had back then. Reasonably homogeneous, without much in the way of tectonic activity. Yeah, and of course we have a little bit of a sampling bias here because all of these zircons are coming from one rock type and we don't have any evidence about the other rocks that might have been around. But yeah, it was a very different place from the Earth that we have nowadays with plate tectonics and so forth. We do think that there was liquid water on the surface of the Earth back then from some isotopic evidence, but exactly how much and how distributed it was is kind of an open question. How do the zircons actually allow you to see this? How do they act as a time capsule to let you determine what happened on the Earth during its very early formation from the time the place was formed, 4.6 billion years ago, up until about 4 billion years ago? Yes, yeah, so the principle of measuring the ages of rocks relies on radioactive decay and in the case of zircon we have almost the perfect mineral for doing this. Zircon when it grows takes in atoms of uranium and thorium but it doesn't take in atoms of lead. Now uranium decays to lead and because there wasn't any lead in the zircon when it formed we can then use the concentration of lead and the isotopic composition of the lead to calculate when that zircon crystallized. And once it's crystallized it doesn't change anymore internally Zircon is an exceptionally robust mineral. There are other minerals that are used in dating, but they t are much more susceptible to alteration by fluids or by high temperatures. But zircon's a really tough one, and it just holds on to its atoms. So we can generally trust that the composition we measure now relates to the original composition that it had. And that was kind of the basis for our study, that we went to these granites of known provenance, in southeast Australia, ones that we knew either came from med melting sediments or from melting igneous rocks, and we were able to decipher the compositions that we see in the ancient zircons instead. As well as using it for dating, you can then look at other minerals within the zircon itself, can't you? The, uh, the, the matrix, the clasps that might be there, and that gives you a clue as to what was around that helped form that crystal in the first place. Well, so this is a very interesting paradox, actually. You do get mineral inclusions inside zircons, although these zircon crystals are maybe only uh, 100 or 200 microns long, so that's you know, a tenth or a fifth of a millimetre long what you do find is they trap much smaller grains of other minerals. And one very interesting thing was that we seem to see a lot of mineral inclusions that imply the presence of sediment melting, but actually the composition of the crystal tells a different story. And so the question for us is how reliable are these mineral inclusions? Are they actually getting replaced by fluids traveling along cracks and so forth? Now, you said you also found rocks in southeastern Australia. Tell me about those. So those are were four formed about 400 million years ago in a smaller continental collision back then and those have been very well studied by scientists here at the ANU and what they discovered was that they tended to fall into two categories, some that formed from melting sediment, some that formed by melting igneous rocks. And so we used these very well-studied samples in order to build up a database of what zircons from different rock types 
look like in terms of their composition. And then we were able to use that database to actually extrapolate to the Jack Hill zircons where we don't have any of the other contextual information. We often talk about Jack Hills because it's such a great place to find some of the oldest rocks on the planet. There are other sites in Canada and especially around Hudson Bay and also in South Africa which have become quite good. Are you planning to look at those rock samples as well to see if they tell a similar story? It'll be very interesting to use the other old rocks to get the zircons out of them and see if we can understand some kind of progressive evolution of the crust throughout the first couple of billion years of Earth history. There's a paper which actually looked at the Earth's early crust. It concluded that it probably didn't form until at least a couple of hundred million years after the formation of the planet itself. Yes, I mean, the oldest zircon grain that we have has been dated to 4.4 billion years old, so that's still about 150 million years after the planet formed itself. The present is the key to the past, and... This is one of our ways of shedding light on the, that very early time period that we have so little uh, other insights into. That's Dr. Anthony Burnham from the Australian National University. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos and other things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook just go to www.facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Astronomers using the European Space Agency's Gaia satellite have discovered six high-velocity stars which appear to have been flung out of the galactic centre through close encounters with the Milky Way's supermassive black hole. The findings, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, could provide scientists with key information about some of the most obscure regions of the Milky Way galaxy. Our galactic home, the Milky Way, has well over 100 billion stars, all kept in place by gravity. Most of these stars, including the Sun, are located in a flattened structure of spiral arms known as the galactic disk. At the centre of the disk is a massive dense bar-shaped region of mostly older stars known as the galactic bulge. And at the very centre of the galactic bulge, located some 27,000 light-years from the Sun, is Sagittarius A star, a supermassive black hole some 4.3 million times the mass of our Sun. Surrounding the entire galaxy, is a wider spherical halo of ancient stars extending out to about 650,000 light-years from the centre. Of course, the stars in our galaxy aren't motionless. Instead, they all move around the galactic centre at various velocities depending on their location. For example, the Sun, consequently all the planets that orbit the Sun, are circling the galactic centre at about 220 kilometres per second. Out in the galactic halo, the average speed is more like 150 kilometres per second. Occasionally, a few stars exceed these already quite impressive velocities. Some are accelerated by close gravitational interactions with other stars or black holes, flinging them out like gravity-assist slingshots. Others are pushed out through shock waves from nearby supernova explosions. And still other stars are alien arrivals from beyond our galaxy that have been cannibalised by the Milky Way from other satellite dwarf galaxies. 
Now, all of these processes can produce runaway stars with speeds of several hundred kilometres per second above the average. A new class of high-speed runaway stars was discovered just over a decade ago. Swooping through the galaxy at several hundred kilometres per second, they're thought to be the result of past interactions with Sagittarius A star, the monster in the galaxy's heart. These so-called hypervelocity stars provide astronomers with an extremely important method for studying the overall structure of the Milky Way. That's because these stars have all travelled great distances through the galaxy, from the very centre out to the halo where they were seen. And their paths can therefore be traced back to the core, an area so dense and obscured by interstellar gas and dust that it's normally very difficult to observe. These stars, therefore, can yield crucial information about the sorts of gravitational densities in the Milky Way, from the very centre right through to its outskirts. Unfortunately, fast-moving stars are extremely difficult to find in the stellar haystack of the Milky Way. That's because current surveys only list the speeds of a few hundred thousand stars. So to find them, astronomers have been looking for young, massive stars that would stand out in the ancient stellar population of the galactic halo. Young stars tend to look more bluish, whereas older stars tend to look more yellowish-red. Given away by their out-of-place age, these stars are all likely to have been flung into the halo through some sort of gravitational assist. Further measurements of their speeds and estimates of their past path can help confirm if they're hypervelocity stars that originated in the centre of the Milky Way. So far, about 20 of these stars have been found. But owing to the specific selection of this method, all of them are young stars with masses of at least 2.5 to 4 times that of the Sun. The thing is, scientists believe there are many more stars of other ages and masses that are also speeding through the galaxy, but remain hidden through this type of search. And that's where the billion-star census being performed by the European Space Agency's Gaia spacecraft offers a unique opportunity for the study's authors. It will allow them to optimise the vast Gaia datasets to search for fast-moving stars. After testing various methods, the authors finally turned to a type of software which allows the computer to learn from previous experience. The system acts as a sort of artificial neural network in which the software is designed to mimic how the brain works. The study's lead author, Tommaso Machetti from Leiden University, says the software can learn how to recognise specific objects and patterns in huge datasets. So Machetti and colleagues taught it to spot hypervelocity stars in the Gaia Stellar Catalogue. As well as a map of over a billion stellar positions, the data set also included a smaller catalogue with distances and motions for about 2 million stars, combining observations from Gaia's first year with those from the European Space Agency's Hipparchos mission, which charted the skies more than two decades ago. Referred to as the Tycho Gaia Astrometric Solution, or TGAS, this resource offers a taste for future catalogues that will be solely based on Gaia data. On the day of the data's release, the authors ran their new algorithm on the 2 million stars of TGAS. And amazingly, in just one hour, the artificial brain managed to reduce the data set to some 20,000 potential high-speed stars, thereby reducing its size to about 1%. A further selection, including only measurements above a certain precision in distance and motion, brought this 20,000 down to just 80 stellar candidates. They then looked at these 80 stars in more detail. Since only information on the star's motion across the skies included in the TGAS dataset, the authors had to find additional clues to infer their velocity, either by looking at previous stellar catalogues or performing new observations. By combining all these data, they found that six stars could be traced back to the galactic centre, all with velocities above 360 km per second. 
More importantly, the authors succeeded in probing a different population from the 20 stars that were already known. And the newly identified stars also all have lower masses, more similar to that of our Sun. One of these stars was quite spectacular, moving at over 500 kilometers per second. Now at that speed, it's no longer bound by the gravity of the galaxy, meaning it will eventually leave the Milky Way for intergalactic space. But the other five slightly slower stars are perhaps even more fascinating as astronomers try to learn what slowed them down. And the invisible dark matter that's thought to pervade the Milky Way may have played a role. While this new program was optimised to search for stars that were accelerated at the centre of the galaxy, it also identified five of the more traditional runaway stars, which owe their high speeds to stellar encounters elsewhere in the Milky Way. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. An asteroid which could have missed the Earth by as little as 6,800 kilometres will now fly by the planet at a far more comfortable distance of 44,000 kilometres. Still close, but not as close as it could have been. The 15 to 30 metre wide space rock, known as 2012 TC4, will pass the Earth on October the 12th. The new revised figures follows additional observations of the NEO or near-Earth object using the European Southern Observatory's VLT or Very Large Telescope in Chile. The earlier estimates were based on just seven days of observations back in 2012 when the asteroid was first discovered. Scientists with NASA and the European Space Agency are studying the house-sized asteroid in detail to try and determine its exact size and composition. 2012 TC4 was discovered by the PanStars-1 telescope on Maui in Hawaii in October of 2012. Just a week later it flew past the Earth at a distance of just 94,800 kilometres. Astronomers still know very little about 2012 TC4, other than it's elongated and is rapidly rotating on a 1.67 Earth year orbit around the Sun. Astronomers think this asteroid's about the same size as the meteor which airburst over the Russian city of Chelyabinsk back in February 2013, injuring some 1,500 people, damaging some 7,000 buildings, and letting the world know just how popular dash cams have become in the Russian Federation. The mere fact that 2012 TC4 comes so close to the Earth flags it as a possible future impactor. Consequently, NASA's using the close encounter as a live test of America's planetary defence network. Now that 2012 TC4 has been found again, the exercise will track and characterise the asteroid as if it were a potential impactor in order to exercise the entire planetary defence system, including observations, modelling, predictions and communications. The exercise will involve more than a dozen observatories, universities and labs across the world to collectively learn the strengths and limitations of Earth's planetary defence capabilities. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. Time now to take a look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. And it's official. 2016 was the hottest year ever recorded. And climate change caused by anthropological greenhouse gas emissions is to blame. The new record surpassed 2015 as the hottest year ever based on 137 years of record keeping. 
The findings by America's Weather Bureau, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also confirmed it is the third year in a row to set a new global warming record. The findings indicate mean global temperatures are now an average of 0.77 degrees Celsius hotter than the average between 1961 and 1990. The study was compiled by over 500 scientists from more than 60 countries. The record heat was the result of long-term global warming, made even warmer by a strong El Nino weather pattern, which was triggered by unusually warm water in the eastern Pacific Ocean, changing global weather patterns and causing droughts in eastern Australia and increased severe storms across the Americas. The studies also confirm that global surface and sea temperatures, as well as sea levels and greenhouse gas levels, were all at record highs. The levels of carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide, the major greenhouse gases that drive global warming, have all risen to new records. With global annual average atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations now at 402.9 parts per million, smashing the 400 parts per million psychological barrier. In fact, it's the first time in the modern atmospheric record and ice core records dating back 800,000 years that atmospheric carbon dioxide has reached this level. In what's being held as a stunning breakthrough, scientists have discovered that increasing vitamin B or niacin intake can dramatically reduce the risk of miscarriage and multiple birth defects. Scientists at the Victor Chang Institute in Sydney found that having low levels of a molecule known as NAD damages embryos during the first crucial weeks of pregnancy when organs begin to form. The groundbreaking study reported in the New England Journal of Medicine will change the way women prepare for pregnancy and is being compared to the discovery of the link between folate and neural tube defects. Around 8 million babies are born globally each year with significant congenital malformations, and about 1 in 4 women will suffer at least one miscarriage. 80% of birth defects have no known cause, and low NAD levels could explain a significant proportion of these. To reach their conclusions, researchers sequenced the genes of four families who had a history of miscarriages in babies with multiple birth defects. They discovered two gene mutations which affected the metabolic pathway that produced NAD, crucial for gene development and repair. They then mimicked the gene mutations using CRISPR-Cas9 technology and found they were able to produce the same defects. The researchers then identified the NAD deficiency. And by simply adding niacin, they found they could boost NAD levels and eliminate the birth defects. A new study says humans may have left Africa and arrived in Southeast Asia 20,000 years earlier than previously thought. The new findings by scientists from Macquarie University in Sydney and the University of Queensland also suggest that humans could have potentially made the crossing to Australia even earlier than the now anticipated 60 to 65,000 years ago. The new study is based on dating of a cave site in West Sumatra known as Lidagere, which provided the first evidence of rainforest use by humans. The thing is, rainforests aren't the easiest place to make a living, especially if you're a savannah-adapted primate like Homo sapien. The new findings stand on the shoulders of Dutch paleoanthropologist Eugene Dubos's discovery of Java Man in the same cave system in the 1800s. The new research looked at Homo sapien teeth found in the same cave complex, finding them to be some 73,000 years old. A barrage of dating techniques were applied to the sediments around the fossils, to overlying and underlying rock deposits in the cave, and to associated mammal teeth, indicating that the deposit and the fossils were laid down between 63,000 and 73,000 years ago. Scientists at the University of Florida have set a new record for the fastest ever light pulse. The new record of 53 attoseconds was set by a flash of X-ray photons. 
The experiment, reported in the journal Nature Communications, breaks the old record of 67 attoseconds set by the same team in 2012. Back then, they used extreme ultraviolet photons. Producing attosecond X-rays requires a new type of high-powered driver, the femtosecond laser. At one quintillionth of a second, an attosecond is incredibly fast. In fact, in 53 attoseconds, light travels less than one thousandth the diameter of a human hair. In the same way that high-speed cameras can record slow-motion videos of flying bullets, attosecond light pulses allow scientists to capture images of fast-moving electrons in atoms and molecules with unprecedented sharpness. The new pulse record demonstrated not just a shorter duration, but also shorter wavelength, namely X-rays as opposed to ultraviolet. And this new light reaches an important spectral region, where carbon atoms absorb strongly, but water doesn't. Such attosecond soft X-rays could be used to shoot slow-motion video of electrons and atoms of biological molecules in living cells in order to better understand how photosynthesis works, and also to improve the efficiency of solar panels. X-rays interact with the tightly bound electrons in matter and may reveal which electrons move in which atoms, a capability that would be invaluable for the development of next-generation logic and memory chips for smartphones and computers that will be a thousand times faster than those in use today. And finally for now, a new study counters previous research that suggests two domestication processes led to the modern-day dog. By analysing the DNA of two prehistoric dogs from Germany, scientists have determined that their genomes were probably the ancestors of modern European dogs. The study, reported in the journal Nature Communications, also suggests that all contemporary dogs have a common origin, emerging through a single domestication process of wolves between 20,000 and 40,000 years ago. Dogs, of course, were the first animals to be domesticated by humans. The oldest remains of dogs that can be clearly distinguished from those of wolves originate from what is now Germany about 15,000 years ago. Unfortunately, the archaeological record is rather ambiguous, with claims of ancient domesticated dog bones from as far afield as Siberia. In fact, last year, researchers who sequenced the genome of a 5,000-year-old dog from Ireland suggested that dogs were domesticated not once, but twice. That team had hypothesised that an indigenous European dog population was replaced by incoming migrants independently domesticated in East Asia during the Neolithic. However, the new results contradict those findings, instead showing that ancient European dogs from the same time period were very similar to modern European dogs, including the majority of dog breeds people keep as pets today. The new findings means there was no mass Neolithic replacement that occurred on the continent and that there was likely only a single domestication process for the dogs observed in the fossil record from the Stone Age and that we also see alive today. Scientists used a 7,000-year-old dog to narrow the timing of dog domestication to between 20,000 and 40,000 years ago. They found evidence that a younger 4,700-year-old dog represented a mixture of European dogs and a population that resembles current Central Asian and Indian dogs. This finding may reflect people migrating from the Asian steppe to Europe at the beginning of the Bronze Age, bringing their own dogs with them. The question of exactly where dogs were first domesticated remains a mystery, although sequencing of additional ancient Eurasian genomes will eventually help solve even this issue. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. That's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, 
SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, your favourite podcast download provider, or direct from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos and other things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook just go to www.facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.